touch with hands and sweat and money and all the stuff that's necessary to make it happen. Uh, this is your stewarding, a very precious thing uh, that God is is doing. I think it's also always important to remember that, um, you know, in the in the, the busyness and everything that will come. This is a stewardship issue. But I just wanted to say, well done. I mean, honestly, it's a beautiful thing. In the middle of all that's going, that's been going on with COVID the last year or two, and kind of churches struggling to sort of, you know, manage. And it has been hard for all of us, really, hasn't it? Both personally and corporately, collectively. I mean, it's our, our world has been turned upside down in many ways. But to see you faithfully trusting God through all of that, through the, the storm, and to say, no, we believe God has said this. Uh, that, that's, that's to be commended. And, and I do commend you this morning uh, and say, the best is yet to be. Right? You've only just really, uh, you're only in the shallow waters yet of what God has in mind for you. So, so be, be encouraged uh, and keep going. All right? This is the day now not to say, oh, we're in, let's relax. No, you're in to start. Okay, <laughs> this is where it re- this is where the party starts. All right, so um, uh, just to give you a few little updates on some things happening in 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 well as regards my world in relational mission, um, as uh, Tom has said, I now lead relational mission alongside Morris, based here with you, and Steph Liston in London. So the three of us now um, bring apostolic leadership to that, and that's been tremendously. Uh, encouraging for me just to see us multiply from um, over the first 10 years I was sort of um, leading it with a team and now we're just multiplying apostolic ministry and we've got other people emerging as well in all sorts of other translocal ways so I do believe the the future does look very bright in terms of uh, multiplication and fruitfulness that goes way beyond uh, just one organizational structure into much more of a movemental kind of dynamic and uh, I believe families are supposed to have children that have children that have children and uh, family family trees do look very multiplied don't they when you get sort of down through the generations and that's what we're about we're about multiplying a family not about building an organization and so it's encouraging for me to see what God is doing at this stage and so for myself and Sue there's a bit of a new season been ahead for us and God's begun to um, encourage us with a few Different things. We spend about half of our time now uh, between Lowestoft and London. God seems to have given us a, an opportunity to be based in London a little bit more. So we're uh, and um, out from Revelation Church where Steph is. There's now a plant into Tottenham and there's a, a, a replanting into Kentish Town, which is where Sue and I base ourselves. We're just beginning to base ourselves. Uh, we're a little bit behind on that plan because COVID sort of. Um, mess things up a little bit and you couldn't go anywhere because <laughs> you were allowed out about it for an hour a day and, and the worst part of it but we're now beginning to back, get back in our rhythm and so probably 50-50 we're starting to get back into London and seeing some tremendous things and it's giving me an opportunity to meet with lots of other people from other networks and other movements and um, one of the headlines I would say that I notice happening across the nation with the church is there is a tremendous desire uh, uh, for unity and for the gospel to become the prime thing that actually is drawing God's church together. The, the desire now to realize that really we need a move of God in this nation is actually stripping away a lot of secondary tribal issues and secondary divided, dividing issues. There is a tremendous heart emerging in the nation amongst leaders to want to work together 
for the advancement of the gospel. We're seeing that all over the place. And it's, it's not just superficial, it's deep heart-level connections taking place right across the body of Christ. And I think that is a tremendous encouragement for what God wants to do in the future. Because you notice when past moves of God have taken place, God always brings unity and he always stirs prayer. And out of those two things come fruitful mission. And I do believe that we are just beginning to see uh, a move of prayer across the nation and, and many other nations. And we're beginning to see uh, unity coming across the body of Christ in a fresh way. And I believe that will lead to a season of very, very fruitful mission. So um, that's to be prayed into. So please do keep uh, praying for God to move across this nation. It's encouraging to see, uh, even in the, the little church plant where we go to in Kentish Town, so many people coming in, beginning to come in from all over the all over different nations. It's amazing, really, just how multicultural uh, things are becoming. And you can see how God is going to be moving across all different kind of people groups, uh, even in our own nation. Very encouraging to see that. A couple of other things just to mention is uh, many of you have been part of the Enough prayer times, and we've been having those. We had one recently, and there was, there was around about 3,000 of us praying uh, across about 20 nations on that Friday evening just recently. And I was talking to uh, Vinu Paul, who leads uh, the church in, uh, in Mumbai the other day. And uh, he, he work, he's part of the commission sphere of churches. And uh, he was saying that now, they've, now multi, they've now translated the little prayers of many book into Hindi. And they're about to translate it into numbers of other languages for the Indian continent. And uh, he's saying that right across um, his network of churches, what we began just for ourselves is now taking root and spreading uh, into many, many places. Uh, and he also told me that, uh, you remember, we, we from time to time take up Christmas offerings, don't we, to empower the poor in different places. Well, a few years ago, one of the offerings we took up at Christmas, uh, we gave some of that money to Vinu in India for a little project he was doing in a rural part of uh, eastern, northeast India, a little little area of a number of villages. I think it was, a, he thinks it was around about 15,000 pounds or something like that. Um, and it was to help with some empowerment projects they were doing there. Well, he said to me uh, yesterday, just in passing, he said, do you know, that money, we've managed to use and reuse that money so much now in terms of starting up businesses, empowering people, training people with skills so that they've been able to start businesses, pay the loans back, and then we multiply it and multiply it. We've been able to put structure into communities that didn't have any water, so there's all the hand pumps, so you can get fresh water in lots and lots of very, very rural places. He said 5,000 people have now been empowered from that offering and have now got um, good raised, raised standards of living, and they're all now employed or being trained in skills to be able to give themselves self-sufficiency. So you did that. Right, if you ever put money into a Christmas offering for Pathways from Poverty, you have played a part in, in lifting people out of poverty, which just goes to show how much we can do when we really put our effort together. We can find ourselves touching lives in other parts of the world that we see perhaps on the television and think, oh, what can I do about that? Well, you have already begun to do something about that. And one of the other things that I'm quite excited about is God seems to be connecting us a lot more now into the Middle East, um, I've got a, a number of connections there now. We, we meet regularly online to pray and talk and 
network together, and we're now actually involved in um, what it would be over 20 nations in, in that whole area of the world. And obviously, I can't go into too much detail about it, but it's encouraging to see what's happening. And we've got numbers of projects where we can really work with the most displaced, the most war-torn, the most devastated, the most difficult places that you might imagine and often see on your television screens. We've now really got an opportunity to do some rebuilding after devastation and to bring the love of God through caring for the poor and bringing the gospel. So we're involved in significant things together. I want you to really know that every single one of you that ever gets involved in giving or praying or going or serving in any way, serving here locally on a Sunday morning, whether you're putting the chairs out, making the coffee, serving the children's work, leading a small group, all of our contributions work towards making this family of churches have impact into the nations. Every single thing that any one of us does affects lives all over the place that we're doing together. So I want you to understand it's not just about a few people doing things. We're all involved in something quite remarkable that God is opening up more and more for us. And I could tell you more and more stories. I really could. There's so many things happening that are very, very encouraging. So don't switch the news on every night and just get sucked down the black hole of despair that the headlines give. Realize God is on the move. It doesn't make the headlines, but it doesn't mean it isn't happening. Right, there's a lot going on, and we are part of something that I never thought we'd be touching nations in the Middle East or you know, now seeing global movements of prayer beginning to connect with us and want to partner with us in, in all sorts of things because prayer is now becoming a global phenomenon. I, I never dreamed those sorts of things would be happening. I could spend the rest of the morning telling you all sorts of things that are going on that are desperately encouraging. So God is on the move. And yes, the dark gets darker, but the light will get lighter because the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He's made that promise. So it's really important we understand what the real narrative is that's going on. And to that end, I want to just, uh, in, I'm going to try and do this in about 25 minutes. Right? I've done it a few times now, and I've just about got there. Um, I'm going to try and take you through the entire Bible in 25 minutes. Uh, that's not a joke. I am going to try and take you through the entire Bible in 25 minutes-ish. Uh, because I want to talk about God's uh, purpose, God's presence, and you. And it's really un important we understand what is God doing? What is the whole point of everything? What, why are we here? Why does the world exist? Why is God interested in what we're doing? Why has he saved us? What, what is it actually all about? And sometimes just to have a whole picture of the whole Bible and what is it from start to finish that God has been wanting to do and is doing and will do really helps us to, to position our own little lives in something far bigger than ourselves. It makes us feel part of something that we think, goodness, I've got a part to play in something way bigger than my own little world would have been if I was just here on my own, lost in the great big world, wondering why I'm here. So I'm going to try and do that. If we get to three o'clock and I'm still in Deuteronomy, something's gone wrong uh, and we'll, we'll have to they can press the trapdoor button and I'll disappear. So I'm going to give it a go. So Lord, help me and help you. Here we go. So it all started in a garden. It all started with God creating the world. God made man and woman for relationship with him. 
Why? Because God has always wanted a family. God has always wanted a people who he could fellowship with, who he could love, who he could pour his affection onto. He's always wanted a family, so he made us for that purposes. We find images in the, in the Bible about family, about a bride, about a house, about a people, about a nation. And all of those images speak about God's close proximity and awareness of his people. It speaks about his manifest presence in the daily lives of those he's made. He loves being with you and me. He loves us. His, he, his greatest fulfillment in what he's made is when he's close and in proximity and in relationship to those he has made. That's why he made Adam and Eve for daily life, moment by moment, fellowship together, just living life together. That's what God was after. And we find in the book of Genesis, it talks about God walking in the cool of the evening with Adam in the garden. It was a familiar thing for God to do that. He loved that. And he made this beautiful Garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve in there and fellowshiped with them. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, steward what I've made, this beautiful earth, steward it, be fruitful, make it abundant. Let's fill the earth together with my glory and, and your offspring. Let's do this together. God was just rejoicing in the fact of what he'd made. He looked at what he'd made and he said, this is good. It's really important we understand God didn't make the earth and didn't make us for some utility purpose. He made us for relational purpose. We exist and the world exists because God desired fellowship. He desired his presence, his proximity, nearness to you. And if you and I ever feel to ourselves, oh, does God really want to be near me? Is he interested in me? Well, the answer is yes, 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 he, and many times yes. Because we see right at the beginning, God didn't have to make the world. He didn't have to make people. He did it out of the abundance of his heart because he wanted a family. He wants a family. And he made us for that, um, that purpose. And that's why, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you'll go through all of your life wondering, why am I here? What, what is the point of life? What is the purpose? Why, why, am I, why do I exist? Why does the world exist? That's the big question that's bothered philosophers over the years. What is the point of life? Why, does it, why are we here? What is the purpose of it? And no one will ever solve that question outside of a relationship with God. Because it's the only thing that makes sense of our lives, to have a relationship with the God who made us. So in the garden it began... And then we find that the Bible tells us that the fall took place. And the fall is where mankind rejected God, was deceived by Satan. He appealed to our independence in our hearts. Satan said, well, did God say, eat this fruit, you'll just be like, you'll be like God then. Satan came in to try and divide the relationship and he succeeded. He succeeded by making man believe that actually well, we can do this without God. We don't actually need this relationship. In actual fact, if we take this, this fruit, we'll be like God, we'll be equal with him, we'll be on the same level as him. Basically, we wanted to do it ourselves, take control, declare independence from God, because we didn't like having a Lord. We didn't like being accountable to anybody. Even today, in our own flesh, we don't like anyone telling us what to do, do we? Do we? 
Hands up if you like being told what to do. See, you don't. Because it's deep within our flesh. I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I want to be autonomous. I want to be in control. And the fall took place and this relationship with God was severed at that moment. No longer did God and man fellowship together. No longer did they know one another. We were alone in the world wondering uh, what we were doing and beginning to think, hang on, well, we can do this ourselves, but we don't. Successive generations then thought, well, we don't know where we've come from, but this kind of feels we can do something with it. And God is longing, desperate in his heart for the lost relationship that he's had with man. God was grieved about this, so he flooded the earth. He wiped humanity off the earth except for Noah and his family because he was still longing for his reconnection with mankind. And he, he, he said it grieved him that he'd made man, but he couldn't bring himself to destroy mankind completely. Why? Because he, he loved us. So he saved Noah. He found Noah was a righteous man. He saved his family, but he flooded the earth. And then he was so sad about the whole thing, it says he covenanted in his heart that never again would he flood the earth. And he put a rainbow in the sky so that every time we see the rainbow, he sees a rainbow. It's nothing to do with LGBT movement. It started with God. All right? It was put in the sky by God to remind us never again is he going to flood the earth. Because he said, I, I don't want to do, destroy man. In his heart, another way was being put together. A man found himself now on this planet, which looks so marvelous and so beautiful. Man found himself now a magnificent ruin, a shell of his former self. A bit like looking at the Colosseum in Rome, where you can see its grandeur, you see its magnificence, but you can see it's a magnificent ruin. Its glory has departed. You can see what it once was, but now what it no longer is. And that's how it is for mankind. We've lost the glory that we once had. When you look out at the world and we see all the dysfunction, global warming and environmental things and damage and pollution and the stewardship of the planet not being done correctly, we're only catching up now with what we've been doing for centuries because we've not been doing it right. Because we've been doing it without God, living without him in greed and arrogance and independence and not caring for what God had entrusted. So the world is broken and dysfunctional. We are dysfunctional. The Bible describes it in Genesis as man works the land and thorns and thistles grow out of it all the time. We all know what that's like if you've got a garden. You can have a perfectly mowed lawn and boop, up comes this thistle the next day. Ah, it's always like that. Life is like that. Life is full of thorns and thistles. Sin and death multiplied throughout the world. They were never God's intention. We were never supposed to die. We were not supposed to be mortal. We were supposed to be eternal creatures with God, being given immortality. We were supposed to live with him forever. Sin and death came because we rejected God. That's why death is such an enemy to us. Whenever we encounter death or talk about death or think about death, it feels like a huge enemy to us as human beings. It feels it shouldn't be there. That's because it shouldn't be. It's our greatest enemy, and it came in because of our broken relationship with God. So man then decides to do it alone. And the Bible tells us one example was this great big tower of Babel that they built. And it was a tower going right up into the sky, as high as man had ever built, higher and higher it went, built, reaching to the heavens as if to say, we can reach God, we can be like God, we can ascend into the heavens ourselves, we don't need God. And out of kindness, God destroys the tower and he scatters mankind across the earth and he multiplies and confuses the languages. 
That's where all the languages came from. He scatters mankind across the earth, really to save us from ourselves. Showing mankind you can't do what you are doing, what you are attempting on your own. You need a saviour. And then into this bleak picture, God begins with one man. That's often the way when God moves. He begins with one man, one woman. He begins with someone. And great transformations take place through beginning with one person. Maybe God might put his hand on you for some transformative person, purpose in your neighbourhood, in your work, planting a church, going to a nation, serving in this church, witnessing to your family. There may be something God will do, want to do through you. God always begins his purposes through us individually. And so God calls to a man called Abraham. Now Abraham was from modern-day Iraq. He was a worshipper of the sun. I don't mean he laid on a sun lounger. I mean he actually did worship the sun. He thought it was a god. He got no idea about the true god. But God speaks to him. And God sovereignly calls him. And God gives promises to Abraham that salvation will come to mankind through him and through his offspring. He says... He's going to have a people. God wants to have a people for himself with whom he can dwell. And he says to Abraham, you're going to have the number of offspring like you have are going to be like the stars of the sky. You're going to, there's a city that God is going to bring to birth through you, Abraham. And all nations and all peoples and all languages will be part of this great city. They will be reached and brought back to God. And through him, God and man will be restored. And do you know what? Abraham says, I believe you. I believe you. And he is the, is the first prototype of what it is to walk with God, to be a, a follower of Christ, a Christian, whatever you want to call it. Abraham shows us what it is to be back in relationship with God. Why? Because he believes what God has said, and it says it's credited to him as righteousness. The way you and I come to know Jesus, the way you and I come to know the Lord, is by believing what he said, putting our trust in his promises, and it's credited to us as being righteous. And Abraham doesn't know anything other than these promises God has made. And he says, I believe you. And it says he left where he was and he set out not knowing where he was going. What a beautiful model of following Christ. Do you know where you're going? <laughs> it's okay to say, I'm following Christ. I've got no idea where I'm going. I'm just following Christ. And Abraham had some facts to face, that he was old, he hadn't got any children, and yet God says, you're going to have, a, you're going to have a, 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 vast, a vast number of offspring. And he's old, his wife's even older, but yet he faces the facts, yet doesn't doubt what God has said. That's what it is to believe. That's what saving faith looks like. So that when Jesus died on the cross and says, if you believe in me, your sins will be forgiven. You'll have a new nature. You'll have restored relationship with God. If you just ask me into your life, receive me as your saviour, you will be saved. And we say, I believe you. In that moment, we cross from death to life. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? God is always looking for faith. He's not looking for action to start with. He's just looking for faith. And it feels offensive to our minds because you think, well, surely I have to go through, jump through a few hoops and do a few courses or whatever, or learn some stuff. No, just believe what Jesus says is true and you will be saved. 
You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be important. You don't have to know anything. You might be in here this morning, you think, I know diddly squat about anything whatsoever in the Bible. Well, by the time I've finished, you'll have gone through the whole thing. Just say that for a minute. But you don't need to know anything other than what God says to you about how to know to come, how to come to know him and believe it. He takes us just as we are. So Abraham faces the facts, trusts God, doesn't know where he's going, but he sets out. And that's what it's like to become a Christian. We face the facts that we can't produce life in God, we can't save ourselves. We face the fact we're as good as dead, and yet God promises we will be saved if we will believe in him. And so we set out, not knowing where we're going, and it's credited to us as righteousness. We're made right by believing God. And Abraham became the father of all who believe. So we don't get to God by doing works, being religious or being good. We get to God simply by believing in Jesus Christ and trusting by faith in his promise that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And that no one gets to God except through him. Simple gateway, powerful results. So God calls Abraham and God then begins to form a people for his own uh, through to begin to, to walk with him. And Abraham has Isaac, who's a child, one of the first child of promise, as it were, but he also had Ishmael because he tried to work it out himself and got in a bit of a muddle with that, but we'll move on. Um, and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And God's hand was on Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, including Joseph. And Joseph and his brothers found themselves in Egypt because of a famine. And Abraham's promised seed then began to grow in Egypt. And the Israelites, as they became known, began to numerous, uh, many of them, so that Pharaoh was scared of them. And then they, that God begins to then call them out of Egypt into his promises. They were in slavery in Egypt. And God said, to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. I want them to be free. I want them to be mine. I want them to have a land, to have inheritance that I've got for them because I want to presence myself with them again. I want to recreate what we had in Eden, but we lost it. And so this exodus begins, journeying towards the promised land. There's a deliverance through the Red Sea, which is an image of us being saved and baptized into God's promises, brought into God's country but it was still a type, it was still a shadow, it was still a picture of the reality that was to come later on. And then God shows them how to live in relationship with him. He gives them the law to nurture the relationship and the presence of God with them. Moses leads them towards the land that God's got for them. And the law shows them what holiness is like, the Ten Commandments and all the other different laws that were given. God was saying, like, this is what it looks like when we live in fellowship together. But the people couldn't do it externally. They would sacrifice the blood of goats and bulls and cows and all sorts of things for their sins. They would shed blood because they knew their own blood should be shed, but they'd shed the blood of animals, trying to make it all right, trying to follow the law, but they kept falling away, then coming back, falling away, then coming back. Something was still wrong. Something was still wrong within the heart of man. They were trying to do external religious things to make themselves right with God. Even though God's law was good, they couldn't keep it. There was something desperately wrong inside. And so they journey, journey through this wilderness on the way to the promised land. And, and as they're journeying, they set up what was called the tabernacle. It was basically a big tent. They take it down when they move. They put it up again. 
And in the middle of this tent, they'd put the Ten Commandments. And only the priest would be able to go in and he'd represent the people and bring all these sacrifices. And the people could only ever stand outside the presence of God. They couldn't go right in. No one was allowed to go in or they'd die because they were sinful. And the tabernacle just reinforces the fact that they can't draw near to God, but yet God is there with them, so near yet so far. They are lost, they're fallen, they can't approach him. And 40 years they wandered through this wilderness trying to get it right and backsliding, then coming back and then doing what God said and then failing. God must have been getting so frustrated with them. And then finally they enter the promised land after Moses dies. He doesn't even see it in his lifetime. Joshua takes them into the promised land. And when they get in there, they get divided, they get defeated. In the end, they think, oh, this is unruly. We need a king. We need a king. We don't want God to be the king. We need a king. And God says, all right, give them a king. So Saul becomes the king of Israel. But this is not God's way. And once more, it shows that man's desire is for autonomy from God. And Saul is not really a good king. So God puts his hand on a young shepherd boy called David And he says, through this man, I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. And David leads God's people. And eventually in Jerusalem, a temple is built, a permanent structure that replaces the old tent that they were living in as they were on the Exodus. And the temple is built. Solomon's son, David, actually completes it. David doesn't see it completed in his lifetime. And it's now a permanent, magnificent place. And it's built so the presence of God, the Ten Commandments are right in the Holy of Holies. And God's people throng around the temple. They come to worship God. But the big question hanging over it all, is that really where God dwells? Is that really the restoration of everything that was lost in Eden? Is a temple made out of brick, filled with beautiful, ornate carvings and uh, curtains and procedures? Is that building really what it's all about? Is it where God dwells? David knew that that God was looking for a city not built by hands. He knew that the temple even itself was only a temporary thing and there was something more glorious to come, something better than the temple in due course. And when the temple was built, you might think, well, now they stand a chance of finding God again. But no, God's kingdom became divided. The temples destroyed, Jerusalem was invaded, the temple was ransacked, and God's people were taken off into foreign lands, into exile, into Babylon, most notably. And they sang that famous song, By the Rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, we wept as we remembered Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Boniam did not think of it first. They were in exile when they first sang that song. Because even from being given the land, given the temple, even then they lost it all and were taken off into exile. The temple was destroyed. And then when the exile was over, Israel returned to its land. They returned to Jerusalem. The the walls were all destroyed and Nehemiah walked around the walls and he wept and he said, look at the state of this. And he began to get it all being built again. And it was rebuilt, but its former glory was lost. It never returned to the former glory it did have. And so there's this big question mark after all this journey, all this effort. What was all that about? And into that situation steps Jesus. And Jesus is God with us. Jesus now brings God into us. 
come to be with us. Jesus is the same as us in that we can call him a second like Adam. He's just the same as us, a man. But he's different from us in this respect. He had no sin and he was God. And we needed him to be God to save us, but we needed him to be man, to be like us. And Jesus comes fully God, fully man, and he comes into this broken situation with the intention of giving his life for us, that God's great desire to have a people for himself and have presence, to have relationship with us is restored again. And as Jesus is crucified on the cross, the temple in the, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom, almost like from heaven, God tearing it, saying, no longer is there going to be any need for any separation between God and man. Now, through Jesus, we can have the fellowship with God that we first had in the Garden of Eden. Through Jesus, everything that man has lost is now going to be restored. This is now the completion of all the journeys through all the centuries that all the Bible speaks about. Jesus has come and through his death on the cross, he's made a way for God and man to be completely reconciled as it should have been in the first place. That is what Jesus did by dying on the cross. We become indwelt ourselves by the Spirit of God. We're born again. Our temple is cleansed so God can come and live in us. That is what it was all for. And Jesus was the only way that what we lost could be restored. And if you're a Christian this morning, God, you are God's temple. He dwells in by the Spirit. Collectively, we are the temple of the living God. When we gather as a church, God dwells here with, with us by His Spirit. We are like living stones, each of us fitted into the temple, a living temple where God is pleased to dwell Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. And he was talking about his own body. He knew that he was now going to become the temple to make a way for God and man to be reconciled. And by simple faith in Christ and his promises, just as Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness, it says in John 1.12, to all who believe in him, that's Jesus, who believe in his name, he has given the right to be called children of God. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never thought about Jesus, you've led a totally godless life just like Abraham, and you hear this this morning today, if you say, well, actually, I do believe, Jesus, you are the Savior, you will be born again and given a completely brand new life, and the presence of God will live in your, in your mortal body forever. And you and God couldn't be closer. That can happen this morning because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And on the day of Pentecost, the church is born. This beautiful expression of all these living stones. Thousands come to Christ. The new temple on the earth gets underway. God begins to build his new temple, the church. And he's, a new way has been made. And uh, you remember in Joel, um, uh, the prophets longed for this day. Joel said that the day's going to come when God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Men and women will prophesy. Your sons and daughters will dream dreams, all the rest of it. He's talking about God dwelling in us. And Joel longed for it. Moses himself said, oh, how I long that God would pour out his spirit on all his people. 
That day came on the day of Pentecost, and we've now got God living among us. Acts 7.48 says, The Most High does not live in temples made by hands. 1 Corinthians 6.16, We are the temple of the living God. Ezekiel 37.27, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. The presence of God, life in the Holy Spirit, is ours today. God with us moment by moment, fellowship with God. You and me, whether we're Jew or Gentile or whatever background we're from, there's no difference. All may come to be part of the temple of the living God. And the presence of God, the life in the Holy Spirit, comes to us because of Jesus. God is looking for a people in the earth where he can dwell by his Spirit by faith in the hearts of people who trust him for salvation in Christ alone. We are the manifestation of the temple of God in the earth. And that temple is reaching across all nations, all people groups, all backgrounds. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to be covering the waters as the, uh, the, the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our job is then to preach the gospel in Ipswich in the east of England, in Europe, in the globe, because we are the temple of God, and through us, God then adds more and more living stones into his temple. And the church will rise, the Bible says, as chief among the mountains. And although the dark gets darker, the light will get, dark, the light will get lighter. We are in a context at the moment where there's much darkness on the earth, much darkness, be it COVID, be it economic upheaval, mass migration of desperate, desperate people situations, all, all sorts that you can't turn, as someone said earlier, I think you said earlier, you turn on the news, it's just bleak, isn't it? The dark is getting darker. Listen, people of God, this is time, arise, shine, your light has come. We've, we are part of a different society. We are hope bringers. That's what you're here for. That's why you've got great big hope litters on the front of your building. It's not just to be pretty. It's real. It's real. And the only reason you've got anything to offer people is because God is dwelling in you. God is in you. I mean, this is a great building, but with all due respect, you are an even greater building because God lives within you. This church is the people, not this building. This body of people is glorious because God is with you. And the more multicultural, the more ethno-different, the more whatever, the more, the more different and diverse, the more glorious. Because it shows that only what God can birth can, can be so glorious. We're used to people um, forming societies and all sorts of movements based on uh, having all things in common. God has raised the church out of those who have got nothing in common other than Jesus powerful and Jesus one day will return physically the dead will be raised they'll get new bodies our new bodies will be our bodies will be transformed heaven and earth will be renewed and merge and what started in the garden in a glorious presence of God with man will end in a city with the dwelling of God and God being amongst his people that's where it's heading with a huge multitude every tongue tribe and nation and sin and death will be thrown into the lake of fire, and God and man will dwell together, and the purpose and plan of salvation will be completely accomplished. What God began in the garden and we lost has now been restored through Jesus Christ, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's stand together. I just want to pray for you. Pray for your part in that as a church. Maybe the band would come back. I think just about okay. I think just about okay, Tom. Yeah, all right. Time-wise. Yeah, if the band could come back, that'd be great. Now, I just, yeah, let's just um, be before the Lord. Now, I just simply want to say, if, if this morning you don't know Jesus, um, well, give your life to him now. What, what, what is the problem? I mean, turn on the news. Do you want that? Or do you want the free gift of eternal life, eternal security, and the promise of God being with you for the rest of your life, guiding you through even the difficulties of life? What? And it's free. I mean, what is the matter with you? It's, it, it is so obviously good news. Isn't it? You think, well, what's the catch? Well, there isn't it. The ways of God are very simple, but they're not easy. You say, well, ah, here's the catch. Well, the catch is this. You have to give Jesus your life. But I tell you what, I wouldn't want my life in my hands just at the moment. So I just want to give you an invitation. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I just want to, I just want to say this. If you this morning say, well, I, actually, I, I really do want to know Jesus. I don't quite understand everything you've said, but there's something within me that's saying, I want to know Jesus. I want to know a bit more. I want to talk to someone. I just want to explore this a bit more. If that is you this morning, just put your hand up where you are, just so I can see you, and then we just want to make sure that someone can, we can get you to talk to someone afterwards. Just put your hand up. If you, if you're not, if you don't know Jesus this morning, but you're, um, but you're interested, you think I just want to find out a bit more. Just do it again so I can see in case there was anyone I just didn't miss, miss yet. Just put your hand up. I'm not going to do anything other than just note your hand. All right. Anyone this morning that wants to say, I want to find Jesus for myself. You're not here by accident this morning. Right? You're here because Jesus has arranged you to be here. <laughs> Why? Because he loves you. He's pursuing you. And you kind of heard it this morning. You think, oh, didn't know all that. Well, no, because Jesus wanted you to be here to hear it. Just one more little moment. Anyone else? I'm going to pray for the church, for you as a church. Father, I do want to pray, Lord, for this family to be remarkable hope bringers. Lord, we have good news. We have the best news. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Lord, we're very weak. We know our weakness. We're not super, super saints or superhuman or... We're not can-do people. We're people who've had something done to us. You've come to us and saved us. So we bring our clay vessels, our clay pot, the weakness that is humanity that we live in. We bring that weakness and say, Lord, would you blow on the treasure that's within us? Each of us has got amazing treasure in us because we have eternal life through knowing Jesus. And I pray that out of weakness great strengths will be displayed. We pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that there would be, a, a, there would be there would be signs 
and wonders in this place that people say, how did that happen? And it will be so obvious it's not brought from man that every possible explanation that's man-centred will be silenced. I pray that it would even catch local headlines. There will be some key signs that happen here. Just like when Jesus healed Bartimaeus and it all went round the community. I pray for one or two key things, Jesus, for you to do in individuals that set the town talking. Just as you did, Jesus, when you walked through the streets of various city after city. Think when you healed, um, delivered Legion from his great troubled mind. And you said, stay there and tell your family what God has done for you. And he, he shared his story amongst the Decapolis, amongst that whole ten cities. And the faith, faith became known. I pray that for this church, Lord, in this next phase. They've got a building that's caught the headlines. I pray now for some activity of God in healing and signs and wonders that will catch the headlines. And will show people this is not a man-centered activity of a building it's a god-centered activity and the building is just housing it we ask for this lord in jesus name